Nobody can bring you peace but yourself. Don't search for anything but peace. Make peace, not war. Peace is a journey of a thousand miles. Peace, like war, must be waged. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, then the world will know peace. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope that someday that you would join us and that the world would be as one. Peace, it's a buzzword. And I have never met a person, at least I haven't yet, met a person who doesn't desire peace. Have you? Peace is thought about a lot. It's talked about a lot, like in those popular quotes that I just mentioned a moment ago. It's sung about a lot. And ironically, it is fought about a lot. But it's interesting that peace is not only strived for by everyone, it is also seemingly slippery, isn't it? It's slippery. Why is that? Why is peace so elusive for so many? Why is it so desired and seemingly yet unattainable? Why can't we just have it and keep it? Why is keeping peace seem like an eight-year-old trying to keep hold of a balloon in a windstorm? One minute it's here, the next minute we're grasping and it's gone. Here's the thing, at the end of the day, when all is said and when all is done, we can only make peace and keep peace if we have peace. And so where do we find it? Where do we find it? If the way we process peace and pursue peace and practice peace matters, not only individually, but also collectively as a whole, where do we find it? Or better, in whom do we find it? Well, please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians. Philippians. It is in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Hebrews in the New Testament. Today I'm going to be picking up where Pastor Jeff left off last week with chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. If you got it, say amen. If you don't have it, say hold on. Okay. Please follow along as I read. 
Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in to these verses this morning. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit now to turn the lights on in our hearts and minds. We ask that you would increase our faith and cause us to see the glory of Jesus and his finished gospel work. We ask that we would not simply be hearers of your word this day, but that we would be doers of your word in word and thought and deed. May the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, you who is our rock and our redeemer. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we all pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul is now beginning his descent. At the close of this letter to the church in Philippi. And thus far in the book of Philippians, Paul has been unpacking what joyful partnership looks like in the Christian life. More specifically, what joyful partnership looks like in the local church, a church like ours. And he's been encouraging us to walk together in the footsteps of Jesus, the true humble servant. Jesus is the center of this letter. Paul's made this abundantly clear under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 2. All of the letter orbits around Christ and his finished work. And here at the close of the letter, Paul gets extremely, here he gets super practical. He brings all of the truth of the letter to bear on our lives. He brings it down to the pavement of our lives. He brings us several exhortations, encouragements that make up in part the pathway of true peace with God and with one another. 
So to guide our time, here's the big idea of our passage this morning. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. Here it is. True peace is found when we reconcile in Christ. When we rejoice in Christ. When we request of Christ. And when we reside in Christ. True peace is found when we reconcile in Christ, verses 2 and 3. When we rejoice in Christ, verses 4 and 5. When we request of Christ, verses 6 and 7. And when we reside in Christ, verses 8 through 9. Let's look at the first exhortation together. The first, true peace is found when we reconcile in Christ. Look with me once again at verses 2 and 3. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It is amazing, brothers and sisters, just how practical God's word is, right? God's word comes to us in principles. Principles that touch every part of our lives. God's word comes to us in those principles that make up the blueprint of a life in Christ. Specifically, a life in Christ together. And it's striking how each practical exhortation, each encouragement from the Holy Spirit through Paul speaks to the highs and the lows of our relationships with one another. This passage is no different. Here we are instructed on how to engage in conflict. Paul, from prison, has been writing and building on the themes of humility and unity throughout this whole letter. And here he comes to a climax where he puts flesh and bone to those themes. He gives us a real life situation for us to learn from. In verses 2 through 3 of our passage, Paul instructs two women in conflict, Eodia and Syntyche. And he exhorts them to reconcile and agree in the Lord. When Paul uses that word Lord, we should be clear on this, he is speaking of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know much about these women. We also don't know the specifics of their conflict. Did you notice that? We don't know the specifics of their conflict. And this is also important. We don't know the timeline of the conflict and restoration. Sometimes reconciliation is immediate by God's grace. Sometimes it's a process by God's grace. But there's much to glean from Paul here on conflict and reconciliation. Now, I'm a tenacious optimist by nature, okay? I'm a tenacious optimist. But let me put my realist cap on for just a moment. Most, if not all of us in this room right now, are in a stated 
or unstated conflict with another person. It may be in the home. It may be with extended family. It may be in the workplace. It may be in the church. I would like to say that I'm going out like way on a limb here, but it's, I'm not. I'm not going, I'm not going way out on a limb here. So marriages, families, church members, regular attenders. Here are four points from this passage that speak and kind of address conflict and reconciliation in our lives. First, we see that conflict exists in a broken world. Conflict exists in a broken world. If we go back to the beginning, we see conflict on page two of our Bible. Didn't take very long. Page two of our Bible, with the fall of Genesis 3, conflict is the result of sin at work in what? Human beings. And then we see that conflict touches every relationship in Scripture. Cain and Abel. Paul and Barnabas. Eodia and Syntyche. And so we should not be shocked or surprised when conflict comes into our lives. We should expect it. We should learn from it because it's inevitable in a broken world. Second, conflict takes two. Here we see two people in conflict and Paul appeals to each person by name individually there in verse two. And he encourages them to agree in the Lord or to be reconciled in Christ. Each person is responsible for the conflict. And each person is responsible for the resolution. We should notice that Paul is not saying here, Eodia, Syntyche is your biggest problem. But you just need to agree with her. He's also not saying, Syntyche, Eodia is your biggest problem. But you just need to agree with her. No. In any conflict of our lives, the problem is first and foremost on us and not the other person. The quicker we recognize this, the quicker we can move our hearts toward one another in the grace and peace of Christ and be truly reconciled. Fundamentally, conflict is a worship problem. It is a heart problem. So with that said, with this said, let's check our hearts today. Let's check our hearts day by day. With the help of Christ, let's kill the pride and selfishness within us. And let's, by God's grace, move toward one another, not sweeping conflict under the rug. But let's move toward one another in conflict with the reconciling love of Christ. Third, seek counsel in deep conflict. The conflict here between Eodia and Syntyche is public in nature. It was public in the life of the church. That's what we see in verse 3. And so Paul encourages this companion, this mystery companion in the church to come alongside and help them navigate the conflict. This companion is likely a leader in the church. 
that both women would have known. It is likely Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is mentioned back in chapter 2, and he's called a fellow worker and minister in Philippi, the church there. Further, what we learn here is how helpful an outside voice can be in conflict. So speaking to the members here at EBC, if you are in a conflict that is not addressed and unresolved, seek counsel. If I could be so firm, shame on you if you don't. If you're in conflict that needs mediation, go to God's Word. Go to a passage like this. And then don't hesitate to reach out to a wise and mature brother or sister in the church or get a pastor involved. Don't retreat. Don't isolate. Don't gossip nor slander the other person publicly or privately. Don't allow a root of bitterness to grow between you and that person. Do not let resentment settle in. It has been said that resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Let resentment go. Let bitterness go. Pray for the other person. Pray for wise counsel and pursue the other person head on and in person with grace and peace. Brother or sister, This is not easy. This is not easy. But you are either part of the problem or you are a part of the solution in the way you address conflict in your life. So seek godly help and find reconciliation and peace in Christ. Fourth, conflict doesn't have the final word in the Christian life. I love that the spirit of the hand of Paul includes this at the end of verse 3. Did you notice that? He says that Yudia, Syntyche are side-by-side partners in the gospel alongside him, alongside Paul, along with Clement and the other fellow workers who, catch this, whose names are in the book of life. That's that eternal book of Revelation 3 verse 5. It's the book that holds and includes all of the names of those who believe in Christ and belong to Christ. It includes names like Iodia, Syntyche, and so many more that stand in the peacemaking gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Christ did through the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's exactly what he has done. He has made a way of peace. He has made a way for peace. And he has made a way for us to walk in peace with one another. Outside of Christ, we are in conflict with God. But in the gospel, God has made peace with God through the work of Christ. Christ lived a sinless life of peace with God. He then died on a cross for our sin so that we might live at peace 
with God and with one another. And then he was resurrected three days later in glory. And in his rising, he annihilated the wall of hostility between us and God. Praise be to God. In Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, all who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus by faith will have reconciliation, will have peace with God and with one another. And if you are here this morning and you do not know this Christ, if you are in conflict and consternation constantly without peace, then I pray that you would hear the good news of the gospel work of Christ and that you would be reconciled to him today, that you would repent of your sin, that you would believe in Christ for your salvation and that that you would in turn walk with others with grace and reconciliation, with the same grace and reconciliation that you could be or have been shown in the gospel of Christ. If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you about this, this gospel of peace. If you are here today and and you're with a friend, ask them about this gospel of peace. You can find another pastor here at EBC to talk with you about this gospel of peace. Don't leave this room without addressing that conflict with God that has been fully taken care of in the blood of Jesus. Don't leave today without responding to the gospel. But Christians, we should notice here that this conflict didn't change Eodia's and Syntyche's status of their gospel partnership nor their salvation in Christ. And so if you are in Christ, conflict doesn't have the final word in your life. Christ does. And that is good news. That is good news for sinners in need of grace and in need of peace, day by day, moment by moment. So walk in the reconciliation of Christ. Walk in it. Pursue reconciliation with others in Christ and find true peace. And second, rejoice in Christ. This is Paul's second exhortation. Rejoice in Christ. Verses four and five, look there with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Uh, Verse four is probably a verse that you've seen like cross-stitched on a pillow at your grandma's house. It's like extremely popular. It's one of those popular verses that we memorize as children if you grew up in the church. And this is one of the most popular verses in Scripture. Why? Because Christianity is a religion of rejoicing. It It is a religion of joy. Paul has been reminding the church of this. Philippians is a letter of joy and rejoicing in Jesus. And if anyone could say that he was living in joyless circumstances, oh, it's Paul, y'all. It's Paul. 
He was in prison. So how can he say this? How could he write this from prison? How, how could he say this knowing that there was conflict in the life of the church then and that there would be conflict in the church forevermore until glory? How could he write this knowing that joyful peace in this life is seemingly elusive, even for Christians? Well, Paul knew the secret of true joy. And it's Jesus. Because of Jesus, Paul can pray with joy and can rejoice knowing that the church is praying for him and for his deliverance. Back in chapter 1. Because of Jesus, Paul can tell the church, make my joy complete by living in unity in Christ, sacrificing and setting your own preferences aside for the joy and good of others, counting others more significant than yourself. In chapter 2, because of Jesus, Paul can rejoice in the gaining of Christ through the gospel. In chapter 3, and because of Jesus, Paul can say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Did you notice that word? Kind of, uh, it sticks with me. It's that word always. Always. We are to rejoice not some of the time, but always, all the time. And so I ask you are you a joyful person? Are you a joyful person? Or has some circumstance in your life caused your joy to suffocate, to be taken away? Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a loss that you're carrying with you. Maybe it's a conflict. When was the last time that you rejoiced in Christ and found joyful peace in him? I commonly hear from Christians, I just don't feel joy. I'm lacking joy. I'm lacking peace in my life. I go to church, it's joyless. I pray. It's joyless. I show up and read my Bible, open my Bible. It's joyless. I have fellowship with other Christians. It's joyless. I'm trying to find joy. I'm trying to find peace. I just can't find them. And I certainly don't feel them. Brother, sister, Stop trying to find joy. Stop trying to find peace. If you are a Christian, then Christ is dwelling in you. Christ is being formed in you by the Spirit today, in real time, today, now. You possess all of the joy that you need you possess all of the peace that you need. Joy is not subjective. Peace is not subjective. No, joy and peace are objective and objectively found in Jesus. 
and in Jesus alone. And so do you want to be a more joyful Christian, a more peaceful Christian? Then stop looking for joy and peace and recognize, remember, and rejoice that you already possess it. If this is a struggle for you, I ask that you would seek accountability. Find another brother or sister in the church who you can honestly text, yeah, I'm not feeling the joy. I'm not feeling the peace. Find a brother or sister who will remind you the truth of the gospel, who will remind you that Christ is at work in you, who will remind you that you have the joy and peace of Christ dwelling in you already. Now, verse 5 could be an exhortation on its own. It could be. But it's also interlocked with the rejoicing of verse 4. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He is not saying, church, uh, y'all need to be more logical. Uh, You just need to be more reasonable. No. No, no, no. That word, reasonableness, is the same word for graciousness. It's the same word for gentleness. Just as we cannot make peace with others if we don't have peace, we cannot live a gentle life in Christ if we do not have a spirit of gentleness. Just as rejoicing ought to mark our Christian lives, graciousness also ought to mark our lives. And graciousness is not that Pacific Northwest nice. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I let that person in as I was merging. How does that work? It's also not that insincere Southern nice. You know what I'm talking about. Bless your heart. You hear that, you're like, oh, thank you. But they're really judging you. So what does Paul mean here? What, what, is, what is graciousness? Graciousness is a gentle disposition in word, thought, and deed toward another that you agree or disagree with. Graciousness is a gentle disposition in word, thought, and deed toward another that you agree or disagree with. So are you a gracious person? Are you a gentle person? What would your spouse say? Your fellow church member say? Another regular attender here? say? What would your kids say if you have kids? On this text, Pastor Matthew Henry says that we are not to run into extremes. We are to avoid bigotry and animosity and judge charitably concerning one another and have a good disposition toward others. 
So brother, sister, do your interactions, your conversations, your emails, your phone calls, your text messages, all forms of communication, including social media. Do they have a spirit of graciousness? A spirit of charity and kindness. We're to be a rejoicing people and a gracious people. And that graciousness is to be known by all. What are we to be known for? Graciousness. Gentleness in Christ. Where there is joy in Christ, there should be the gentleness of Christ. We who have been shown grace ought to show that same grace that we have been shown. So let's be a church. Let's be a local body of believers who are marked by the meekness and peacefulness of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Let us be a congregation of rejoicing, grace-giving, peacemaking, gentle believers. For the Lord is at hand. For the Lord is at hand. It's interesting that Paul adds those words on the heels of this exhortation. It's kind of strange. I received an email from a brother this week asking, oh, I didn't really notice that before. That's interesting. What do we do with that? Well, there's a connection between our present rejoicing, our present graciousness, and our waiting for the coming of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. Be gracious, Christ is coming. Be gracious, Christ is coming. So let us not be caught when he returns with a spirit of ungraciousness, the lack of gentleness. Well, we are not only to be a reconciling and rejoicing people, we are also to be, as the text says, a praying people. That brings us to our third point, Paul's third exhortation. Let me read verses six through seven once again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This may feel a bit disjointed from the previous exhortations, but Paul is addressing an issue that so often deters reconciliation, rejoicing, and requesting of Christ in prayer, and that's anxiety. Anxiety is an epidemic. It's very contagious. There is no such thing as a human being that doesn't struggle with anxiety. We all struggle with it to one degree or another. Just as we all have an anger problem, we also all have an anxiety problem. No one is exempt. No one's exempt. And God knows this. He knows this because this text assumes it. He didn't, he didn't say, the Spirit didn't say to the hand of Paul, if you have anxiety, here's how you should handle it. Well, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that. The Spirit of God speaks to this issue explicitly here. He assumes it and graciously addresses it. So what are you anxious about this morning? What anxiety have you brought in here? Have you carried in here like a ball and chain today? What stressful or anxious situation is suffocating your peace? The question is not, do you have anxiety? 
The question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with that anxiety? Brother, sister, you are not alone. You're not alone. You're in a fellowship of anxious people. You're in a fellowship of anxious people this morning who need the grace of Christ moment by moment. And God desires that we not take our anxieties to food or to drink or to pornography or to some other idol, shopping, but to take our anxiety to him in prayer. He wants them. He wants all of them. He desires we make supplication, that we make appeals to him with thanksgiving. And he will supply us with mercy and peace and a sympathetic ear. You are not a burden to God. Your anxieties are not a burden to God. God desires to hear all of your anxious toils, all of your anxious troubles. He desires to hear from you. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Though God knows what we need even before we ask it of him, he asks that we take our anxieties to him. He desires them. So will you take them to him today? Will you? Jesus himself says, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest for my heart is gentle and lowly. Jesus welcomes your anxieties. And what does this tangibly look like? It looks like prayer. It looks like prayer. It sounds almost too good to be true, right? It sounds almost far too simple. But prayer is the spiritual prescription to anxiety. No, prayer is not magic, and God is not a genie. But God desires that we take the anxious and terrifying anxieties in our lives to him before they come, when they come, and after they come. This is an imperative. This is not an option. We are to be anxious for nothing, We are to take everything to Christ in prayer. He asks to take our requests, to make them known to him, and to trust him. That's the hard part, right? To trust him with the outcome. And what is the result when we go to God in prayer? He promises to lavish upon us, verse 7, his peace and presence that guards our minds. When we lack understanding, God promises to give us a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that guards the heart and the mind in Christ. The last time that we were down south, out in California, and flying out of LAX, it was very apparent that there was a whole bunch of anxiety, both in us and around us. It was frantic, fast-paced, anxious, If you've been through LAX, you know what I'm talking about. Kind of makes SeaTac look pretty relaxed, even on its busiest day. But as we were driving in, into the airport, uh, there were two armed guards standing about the entrance and the exit, full camo, AR-15s in hand. 
It was a sight to see. It, it felt third world. But whether you were coming in or going out, they guarded the entrance and exit day and night. In the chaos and palpable anxiety of LAX, they stood guarding the entrance calmly. And their presence brought peace and comfort and a certain amount of safety as they calmly stood there and kept a watchful eye on things. This is how the peace of God works in the midst of our anxious lives. The peace of God stands at the entryway of our hearts and minds and guards us in Christ. Isn't that a precious truth? Isn't that a precious truth? That is good news. So let's make our requests of Christ and trust that his peace is near, even in the anxieties, even in the darkest situations of our lives. And let's reside in him. And that brings us to our last last point, to the fourth exhortation, reside in Christ. Let me read verses 8 through 9 once again. Finally, brothers, and that's Adelphoi, so it's brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In Scripture, our existence, our personhood is talked about in two ways. There's the outer person, our body, our earth suit, our flesh. And then there's this inner person, which is the soul, the mind, the will, the heart in some. And Paul has a lot to say in this letter about our inner person, how it drives us and impacts our relationships and our peace. And for Paul, the heart and mind are always intertwined. If we just did like a a reading of the way that Paul speaks about this in all of the New Testament, we would see that the heart and mind are intimately connected for Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And for Paul, They're one and the same. When the heart is not at peace, the mind is not at peace, and vice versa. When the mind is not at peace, the heart is not at peace. They're always working together. And lack of peace often starts, right, with our minds. Particularly the mental space that we dwell in, our thought life. So take a moment and think about this for a moment. Just just for a moment. Consider your thought life. What do you think about the most? What consumes your thoughts? Is your mind restless or at rest? Pulling these passages together, reconciliation and rejoicing and requesting of Christ are often interrupted by a mental life that is unfocused, unexamined, and uncontrolled. And so do do you notice the encouragement here? Paul Paul encourages us to think, but to to think rightly, to think deeply, and to focus on what is, verse 8, look there with me, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, 
worthy of praise. He is exhorting us to dwell on these sorts of things. And in these sorts of things. In short, he is exhorting us to reside in Christ. To rest in him. For Christ embodied all of these things. He is honorable, just, pure, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And the Spirit is exhorting us here to reside also in the Word, Scripture. Christ and His Word from Genesis to Revelation are simpatico. They are intimately bound together. It tells one story of one peacemaker, Christ Jesus. And so to reside in Christ is to reside in these things, to take our thoughts captive to him and to scripture and to have a Christ-controlled thought life on the bright days and on the dark days. When one of our daughters was, was very young, they struggled with night terrors. I don't know if you've ever had one of these or if sat alongside someone with having a night terror. It's terrifying. You see anxiety and terror in the heart and mind and body of that person as as you sit with them and kind of feel all those same things alongside them. Helplessly, as they're kind of half awake, half asleep, mentally and physically unsettled. Sometimes the terror would last a very long time. And I would just sit with her, along with Kate, I would be present with her. I would pray for her. I would play hymns over her. I would wait for her to pass through it alongside her. And when she came through, she would quietly rest and reside in my arms. And I would pray over her again. And why would I do that? Why would I pray for her again so that she would be reminded of all the opposite things that her heart and mind were just filled with? So that she would be reminded of peace in God when there's lack of peace. I would remind her the promises of God, the goodness of God, the things of Christ that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Brother, sister, Christian, this is how God is with us. This is how he resides with us. He is near to us. He's given us his presence and his word. He is with us in our anxious and anxiety, terrifying times. We may not always be aware of it, that he is with us, but he is. But he is. He has given us himself and his word to reside in so that we might be reminded of what is true and what is excellent. So let me make appeal to you, make an appeal to you. Memorize scripture. Memorize scripture so that what is good and right can dwell richly in your heart and mind for those unsettled days that are inevitable those days when you can't think clearly. We reside in Christ when we dwell in his word, when we reside in his word, memorize it and store it away. So further, practically speaking, it is one thing for Paul to say, all right, church, all right, I need you all to think about these things, okay? Just just do this. Just think about these things. It's another for him to explain how. The the how is important here. And yes, this is connected to prayer in that, that previous point. But counselor Esther Smith in her book, A Still and Quiet Mind, A Still and Quiet Mind, helps us with this. Uh, When our train or trains of thought are barreling down and our thoughts are restless and out of control, full speed ahead, she encourages us to ask five questions. Five questions. Is this thought true? 
Is this thought helpful? Is this thought appropriate to my situation? Is this thought complete? And lastly, what else? Anything else regarding this thought? It is wise to regularly examine our thought life. And these questions are helpful in doing so. We ought to day by day pull in and park in the truth of Philippians 4 verse 8 and reside there. Reside in Christ there. Uh, This isn't pop psychology. This isn't pop psychology. This is practical help on how to take thoughts captive to Christ and how to discipline our minds to reside in Christ, his word, and on his finished work in the gospel. Well, in verse 9, Paul pulls it all together and says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What we see in Paul is the same thing we hear from Paul. What we see in Paul is the same thing we hear from Paul. And Paul recognized that it is one thing to hear these things. It is another thing to do them. There is a direct correlation between what we believe and what we do, our doctrine and our devotion, our knowledge and our practice. So let's practice these things, just as Paul did. Let's practice these things and rest assured that when we reconcile with others in Christ, when we rejoice in Christ, when we request of Christ in prayer, when we discipline our thought life to reside in Christ, when we practice these things, the peace of God will be with us. The peace of God will be with us. This is a promise. This is not a hypothetical. This is a gospel promise that we can stand in. So in closing, where do we find peace? In whom do we find peace? Ultimately, in Christ. We can only have peace if we have him. We can only make peace if we have him. We can only keep peace if we have him. He is the peace of God embodied. And he has promised that he is with us, for us, and in us. As we reconcile, rejoice, request, and reside in him, even to the end of the age. The strength and the power to do these things is beyond us. It's beyond us but they are not beyond Christ and his finished work. What grace, what peace, what a savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reconciling us to yourself through the finished work of Jesus. We praise you and thank you and rejoice because of this. And we ask that you would give us what we have not, that you would teach us what we know not, and that you would make us what we are not. We will give you all the praise and glory and honor for what you continue to do in our lives through the power of the gospel. It is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray, amen, amen.